Once again, welcome. I'm glad that you're here with us today. I'm Pastor Chris. I'm the lead pastor here at Table Life Church, and I'm very, very glad there are so many folks here in person, and I know also online, given the time change, right? You lost an hour of sleep, and everybody, we complain about this, what, like twice a year, right? How we should never do this type of thing, but then we're so happy when it's light at night and you're not driving home in the dark from work. But uh, thanks for being here, and I hope you had a second cup or maybe a third cup or maybe a fourth cup of coffee today. Uh, we have plenty out in the lobby if you're here with us in person. And also, um, hopefully you received a worship guide on your way in. If you did, you can take that out and follow along with the sermon today. There's also, at the end of that, there's some notes there that, and some questions, too, that you can do in personal study, personal devotion, maybe during the week, something that you might take up for this Lenten season, this season of preparation, the 40 days leading up to Easter. So, um, this week, we're in the second part of our Lenten sermon series called Were You There? And um, we're visiting over these next weeks, six weeks in total, uh, visiting the places that Jesus traveled in his ministry on the way to the cross. And we're going to look at the physical locations, but also, in a way, how we've been there. We've been there. Uh, maybe not physically, maybe you've never traveled to the Holy Land, to Israel, but um, how we visit often these places spiritually, emotionally. And we're looking at these, these locations, these places, these towns, these regions, and uh, not only what happened there with Jesus, but also what happens there with us where we encounter Christ. And last week, last week we kind of kicked off the series with a look at a place. Does anyone know the place that we visited last week? Just shout it out. That's this week. Y'all, the worship team, they're like already like two weeks ahead and everything. Okay. Okay, ready. The wilderness, thank you. Yeah, yeah, they're already like, yeah. You're, you're like in the future, man. You didn't hear the message yet. That's awesome. So, <laughs> but we were in the wilderness. We were in the wilderness, the place where Jesus spent 40 days, and before, even before that, he was, he was baptized. Well, this week, this week I'm going to start today with asking you a question. We asked a question last week. If you enjoyed the wilderness, we had lots of different answers. But this week, are you a beach person or are you a mountain person? We're starting to plan summer vacations, trips, all that kind of thing. So which are you? Which Hands up for all the beach people. We're going to the beach, flip-flops and sand, right, and sunshine. Or are you the mountain person, the flowing stream? Wow, we have lots of mountain folks here. We have people, like, shaking their hand. I don't know. Could you stick two hands up in the back? We have a whole little row back there. Y'all are, y'all are into this. Yeah, yeah. So this is very telling where we might take a church retreat. So, um, but this, got me, this question got me to wondering, are, was Jesus a mountain person or a beach person? If you read the Gospels and you see where he traveled, was he a mountain person or a beach person? Where did he go? Well, today, today we're headed to the sea. We're headed to the sea where you might conclude, you might reach the conclusion that Jesus may have been more of a beach person even though he spent some time in the mountains. So so, uh, story goes, after 40 days of temptation in the wilderness, right, wilderness, we're not at Capernaum yet, um, in the wilderness, uh, we see that in the, uh, John the Baptist, who was in the wilderness as well, baptizing, baptized Jesus, John the Baptist gets arrested at that point, and he's sent to prison, and at that point, Jesus returns to Nazareth, Nazareth. Now, what's significant 
about Nazareth? Well, it was the place where Jesus grew up. Like, think of your hometown, right? Where did you grow up? It was a small working class village of only about 100 to 200 people. This is the town with no stoplight in it. This may be a stop sign. Most people were related. So those of you from Perry County, you know, there are certain areas that you might connect to. And, um, yeah, we're, we're going a little diggy today. So, but, but it's a small town, right? You kind of get the picture of what that was. And so Jesus returns to his hometown, small town. Everybody's related. Everybody knows one another. And he returns ready to call people to repent and usher in the kingdom of God. That's always a good news among your relatives, isn't it? You want to come and share about this, this amazing thing that God is doing? Well, he's do, he has the goal of doing that, except it does not turn out that way. It doesn't happen like that. Because that Sabbath, the synagogue was crowded with people to hear Jesus preach a message. His first message in his hometown and Luke kind of describes this in the story. He tells us in his gospel that he, Jesus opened the scroll to read what was the scripture that, that day. They had a kind of a cycle of readings. And it was from Isaiah, the chapter 61 in our terms. That happened to be the reading of the day. And Jesus said this, the spirit of the Lord is on me. He's quoting Isaiah here. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for all the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began, he began his sermon by saying to them, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Whoa! Whoa, I mean, these are people he grew up with, right? These are the people that saw him when he was like the little kid running around the synagogue doing like crazy things, right? He, they, they knew him. He was like the, you know, the carpenter's son, like, and who knows about like, there was like the wedlock thing. Oh my gosh, who knows what happened with that, right? The Mary's talking about this immaculate conception. I don't know about that. Like, this was the guy that they knew. They'd gone to school with maybe, they brought up with. And yet he's making a messianic claim here. He's making a claim to say that all of this about being anointed, all this, this good news of proclaiming freedom, that he's it. Whoa, whoa. And you can imagine that probably made some people very mad. Like, how dare you do that? This is like sinful, right? To claim that you may be the son of, you may be the Messiah. And so what do they do? Well, Luke tells us they um, kind of acted a little dramatically. They decide that they want to throw him off a cliff and stone him. Um, and so instead of that, though, he kind of gets out of the way and he's run off. He's run out of town. And so imagine Jesus left Nazareth, rejected. He had failed. Think about that. Have you ever thought about Jesus kind of like failing? Like this was a total failure. It's kind of crazy, right? If you were going to make this stuff up in the Gospels, wouldn't you, if you were designing a legend or writing your own story, wouldn't you put Jesus at this, like, a miraculous, like, all these people, oh, their eyes were amazingly open, instead of, like, wanting to throw them off a cliff, right? It doesn't make sense. So maybe this actually took place. Well, Matthew and Luke tell it differently. 
but the result was the same. He was turned away by his own people, the people who should have accepted him, the people who should have loved him. Were you there? You know, can you relate to a time? Maybe you've been rejected by the people who were close to you, who should have supported you and loved you. Well, that's where Jesus was. And so imagine he took a very lonely journey. He left alone at that point, and he made his way along the Sea of Galilee. And you know what's really interesting? That in the Gospels, everything that took place in the Gospels took place in an area no larger than the Philadelphia metro area. Believe it or not. Kind of small, right? And everybody walked everywhere. Jesus walks 24 miles, about a 12-hour walk, and he walked through this place called the Valley of the Doves and to get to Galilee, which had lush trees and flowers, a lot different than the arid wilderness where he had been. And you imagine as he's walking through this valley, there are sheer cliffs on both sides. These were the places that, uh, even before Jesus, where the rebels who were against King Herod, they had hidden before Jesus was born in the Maccabean Revolution. The Valley of the Doves, he would walk through there and it would have emptied into a plain along the sea at the lakeshore of a town called Magdala. Hmm, Magdala. Jesus didn't have any disciples following him yet, but perhaps that was where the story took place, where he met a woman named Mary, Mary the Magdalene, who had seven demons in her. And she was actually not a prostitute, though that seems to be the tradition. She wasn't. She was actually a businesswoman who went on to support Jesus' ministry along the way, who stood, at the tomb, who stood at the cross with him when everybody else left, was the first to the tomb, and was actually called the first apostle in Christian tradition, the first to share the good news. But imagine Jesus is journeying along here, and he eventually ends up in a town on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee called Kfar Nahum, or Capernaum. Capernaum. So just a question. Uh, when I say the name or the, of the place, Las Vegas, what do you think of? Just shout it out. Oh, sin, somebody said, yeah. Okay, gambling, gambling, casinos, right? Like all this stuff, have you ever been to Vegas? The shows, you see all this, the kind of crazy stuff. Um, what, what if I say the name of the place, Philadelphia? Freedom, freedom, okay, yeah. Brotherly love, Liberty Bell, right? Gritty, gritty, the Flyers mascot, he like, yeah, pops, to, pops into mind. Okay, let's go like a little bit holy now. How about Bethlehem? What comes into mind when I say Bethlehem? The manger, Pennsylvania. Yes, you can get like your Christmas cards sent out of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Um, but Bethlehem in the, in the Holy Land, right? Jesus, manger, that kind of stuff. When I say the name Capernaum, what comes to mind? Like deer in headlights, like ah, uh, right? Usually nothing unless you've like traveled there you've gone on a trip well did you know Capernaum is the second most important town in the gospels after Jerusalem second most important town and this was the place all these things took place where Jesus called his first disciples while on a walk there seven of the 12 disciples were from there that was their hometown 
It was a town of about 1,000 to 1,500. This is kind of a picture of, of what Capernaum looks like on the Sea of Galilee. Very beautiful. It was constructed, constructed from volcanic basalt uh, geologically. It had a harbor. It had a 2,500-foot seawall. Get this. It was known for its seafood. So imagine if, like today, it would be like the seafood buffet on every corner. But it's also known for its grain, its olives, its craftsmen. But it was strategically located at a crossroads, at a crossroads where both Jews and Gentiles would have crossed paths, lots of different people. It had a Roman customs office. And believe this, the customs officer was named Levi, also known as Matthew. Maybe that was why all these people, think about that, maybe that was why Jesus decided to base his ministry there. It was kind of like his base camp. That was his mission, was where people are. Not just the religious folks, but people from anywhere and everywhere. And would you believe that Capernaum is the place where more healings took place than anywhere else in Jesus' ministry? See, Capernaum is the place of healing. It's the place of healing. And that's what we're going to focus on today. So good question for you and maybe the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Where do you need healing? Where do you need healing in your life? See, uh, there's a great and common question that we ask when we often read the scriptures is the question, maybe you've asked this before, maybe you haven't, but did Jesus really heal, right? Did he really do this stuff? And then the next question kind of piggybacks off that, does Jesus really heal? Does he heal? Because we live in a postmodern age, right? And we talked about this last week, where we kind of had this tension to explain everything away, and we get our information from different sources. You know, you read, listen to a podcast, and then you decide to throw out the whole Bible and, and that kind of thing. But, but we're going to talk about these kind of things that, that we should talk about, about healing. We're going to talk about that through Capernaum today, because we're going to visit three healing events that Jesus that took place with Jesus. And I think above all else, I think we, what, one thing that we have to focus on is that the point of healing is that it points to the healer. The point of healing is really that it points to the healer. It's less about the healing because each person that we're going to talk about eventually died, eventually died, eventually suffered right? But the point of healing is that it points to the healer. Well, the first incident we see takes place in another synagogue, but this time it's at Capernaum. And so Jesus is preaching there. You imagine that there's kind of like a gallery in this building where the synagogue was located. There was a gallery where the women would sit, and then the men would kind of sit on benches that were on the walls and on the sides, and they were all gathered around. And the tradition was, as was in Nazareth, where Jesus would stand to read Scripture. That's why sometimes here we'll ask you to stand for the reading of Scripture. And then he sat down to preach and to teach. And as he began his, his reading of Scripture and his, his talking about it, his sermon, it's described that people were astounded. And the word that's used here, this is written in the Greek language originally, was called thambio, which kind of has this, this idea of fear and wonder and also this kind of power and disturbingness, right? That you're kind of like, wow, like you're in awe, but it's kind of like a, oh my gosh, kind of awe. Well, Mark tells us this, that, that Jesus is preaching and teaching here, and Mark says, but just then... Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? 
Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This is very inconvenient, right? Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. Imagine news about him spread quickly all over the region of Galilee. So first story, the man with the impure spirit. Healing shows Jesus' power. Healing shows Jesus' power. And, and I imagine um, I was reading this and I kind of put myself in Jesus' place. And imagine when you're kind of like preaching or giving a presentation or doing any kind of public speaking, it's very like unnerving to be interrupted. And I have to admit that there have been times that I was interrupted when I was preaching a sermon. One very memorable circumstance was during a um, Advent service, kind of before Christmas time, when uh, a boy decided to come up front and we had the Advent wreath here and it was lit, it had his candles on it. Well, he had been told that fire was bad so he decided he was going to go up and he was blowing out each and every one of the candles in that time. And it was kind of cute and funny at the same time. And I'm glad his parents taught him what it was. But thankfully, I've never been interrupted by a demon yet. Well, Jesus was. <laughs> and he spoke to the man from which the demon resided. And people were once again, used this, uh, Mark uses this word thambio. People were amazed and you imagine, because of this whole scenario, huge crowds descended to see him, right? They were curious about him. They were curious about what this, this man was doing. And, and Jesus, he, he cast this demon out of him, and, and everybody's like totally shocked, right? They knew this guy, probably. They'd seen him around town. Everybody kind of stayed away from him. And, and so we kind of look at this story, though. We ask, so what was the demon, Right? We're always asking those questions. What was the demon? Was it mental illness? Right? Because Jesus casts out a lot of demons in the scriptures. It kind of happens over and over again. And we know this. We know in the ancient world, fevers were thought to be caused by a demon. If you were deaf or mute, that was thought to be caused by a demon. Uh, I've been asked by people um, legitimately, like, you know, do I personally, do I believe in demons? And my answer is it's complicated. It's complicated because first, everything in the ancient world was thought to be demonic. They didn't know of epilepsy or schizophrenia. They didn't know of bacteria or viruses. But I don't think that's the point. Because it, to Jesus, it didn't seem important to distinguish between curing someone and casting out a demon. The point was healing and deliverance, was that it was his power. And don't we today, don't we use the word demons today to characterize things like addictions, like harmful behavior? Demons can be the thing that haunts you from a long time ago, from your childhood. It could be the PTSD that you've experienced, something that happened to you, something that you did. And imagine, I think it's a combination of both supernatural and kind of horrible things that have happened to us and that we struggle with. And I have to say, as a pastor, I've seen both. I've seen, you want to say, demo demonic activity on its own, and I've also seen expressions of, of addictions and mental illness that seem to keep someone captive. A demon is something that's not of God. 
But the good news is Jesus has power over them. Power over them because he is greater than the power of darkness. And that's why recovery programs, the effective ones, always include a higher power. Always include a higher power to look beyond yourself. That in order to move to recovery, you have to confess a higher power and, and to, to say that you are out of control, but someone else is. And this doesn't mean that everybody's demons, though, get cast out. Because imagine Jesus, as he walked this earth, he didn't cast out every demon. He didn't cure every single person. So I think there's a sense of his power here that I think the story is really, really pointing to. And I think as we kind of wrestle through that, it's good to address, is that this kind of healing is really teaching about Jesus' power. He has authority here. But then we visit a second scenario, a second circumstance, where that includes Peter's mother-in-law. Peter's mother-in-law. He's called Peter to follow him already. And this kind of healing shows that Jesus cares. That's what this kind of healing communicates. And so the chapter continues. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Peter, known as Simon. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. And they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her and took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Uh, so the place, first let me describe where this was located. So Peter's house, houses at this time were super, super small and super, super packed. So his house is about 625 square feet. Pretty tiny, right? And guess what? There were six adults living there. You think you're on top of like, you know, your spouse and kids and all that kind of stuff. Well, and, and actually you can visit this site. This is what it looks like. In the 300s, about 300 years or so later, there was an octagonal church that was built on top of Peter's house. Eight was kind of the symbol of being beyond completeness. Seven being the symbol of, com of the number of completeness. And, and there is, it was a house that was a place of worship for a long, long time. But we see in this story that Peter must have liked his mother-in-law, right? He must have liked his mother-in-law a lot because not only does he take Jesus there, but what's the first thing that she does after she's healed? She left, she began to wait on them, right? She's like, let me make something to eat for you guys, right? So there, there must have been a really good relationship there. Well, we see in the story, though, the depth of Jesus' compassion for the sick, that he leaves the synagogue after casting out this, these, this demon, this impure spirit, and he noticed, he stopped, he went. See, this is the kind of God who we serve, a God who cares about us. I don't know if anybody has ever told you they care about you. Well, Jesus does, and, and he cares about you, but he also cares about our physical bodies, that they matter. And, and we ask, though, looking at this story, you know, the question, does Jesus heal physically even today? Does he continue to heal? Well, I had a, a friend from a previous church. Um, her name was Miss Charlotte. And she was a pillar of the church for many years. Um, she was retired, a re retired um, nurse and teacher. And she was like probably one of like the best like kids Sunday school teachers you could ever imagine. She made these poster board things and had hats and all sorts of amazing things. And she was like such an amazing woman of prayer. Like if you had like a prayer need, like I would go to her and say, hey, Miss Charlotte, can you pray for this or pray for that? And you knew that she spent like hours on her knees. Well, two years ago, she was diagnosed with ALS. And she rap rapidly, rapidly 
declined. And it was so hard to just to see this woman struggle. She would drag herself to church. She would, she would be hospitalized at times. And there were times that in my own prayers, I even bargained with God. You know, what can I give you, God, like to just have her be better? Like, she doesn't deserve this, right? Have you ever felt that way? Well, in my prayers, though, yes, I prayed for her healing in that way. But I also prayed for a couple of other things. I prayed for the doctors, the doctors, the, the ones, the nurses who were going, that, that could be God's instruments in bringing her healing or at least relieving her pain. And even in the scriptures, one of the gospel writers, Luke, he was a doctor. He treated people's bodies. And so I prayed that God would use the doctors. You might have heard of Oral Roberts University. I don't know if you knew that Oral Roberts himself was a traveling faith healer. But then he started a university, and people asked him why. Well, it was because he believed that ordinary people can be instruments of healing. Teachers, doctors, nurses, counselors, lawyers, scientists. But I also not only prayed for the doctors in her care, but also for the body's healing power. Because I think that's a real thing we've even discovered scientifically, that the body has an immune system, right, that, that works. And, and I prayed that, that she would be able to fight this. And I also prayed for God to intervene and to heal her body, though. Because miracles have happened. I've seen them. You've probably heard and seen them. It doesn't happen all the time to say that someone was miraculously healed. And I have no explanation. I'm not going to get up here and say I have no explanation to say why this person was healed bodily and this person was not. But I've experienced it, and I prayed, I prayed for people that, that were, were suffering in that way. And, and so I don't believe that God gave Miss Charlotte ALS any more than he would inject cancer cells into a child. But I do believe, and Miss Charlotte, she confessed this, she believed that God could bring something good through this, and that God would be at work in the midst of the battle. To say we don't know what the future holds, but we do know that no matter what, God will not let you go. You belong to him. And she helped me trust that even if a miracle would not happen, she would be okay in the hands of the Lord. And she didn't believe that necessarily it meant that God didn't exist if she wasn't healed, because she knew that there was a more miraculous healing ahead for her regardless, and that either way, she would win. And so two weeks ago, on Monday, she passed away. Two-year fight with ALS. A woman of faith that is celebrated, but even to the end of her days, she's able to say, I confess in my great physician and my healer, and I will be healed, and I believe she has been. See, the biggest thing that was happening in Capernaum were these healings, of course, and many people were going to Jesus about him. But, but I think we need to realize that part of healing shows that God cares. It may result in healing, being healed. You know, I've, I've known of people I've prayed for and with people I've prayed for, and they've gone in for surgery, and the surgeon actually found nothing to stitch up, nothing to repair, and they sent them on their way. But also realizing, though, that even despite that, Jesus cares and he's with us every, every step of the way. 
So the story continues. Many people come to Jesus. He goes away just to get away. You know, we got to get away sometimes. And then he returns and he stays in Peter's house. And so the last story tells us in Mark, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached a word to them. And some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowering the, man, lowering the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw, underline this, their faith, not his faith, their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. To so the paralyzed man, healing shows that Jesus often works through people. He works through people. See, Jesus is teaching. Imagine the scene. There's crowds at the doors. The place is packed. The windows, they're standing there. They're outside. And what's so interesting is these four friends, they heard what Jesus could do, and they were determined. And so they knew there was no getting through the crowd, so they did what? They improvised. They carried their friend. They went up to the roof with him. Imagine, he was probably a very trustworthy individual. I could probably list a couple people I might trust to carry me up on a roof, right? Maybe you can think of that. But they carry him up on the roof, and then they make a hole, and they lower him down. And imagine, remember this is Peter's house? Imagine, what is Peter thinking? Peter's like, oh my gosh, I just got the new roof, right? He's thinking dollar signs. I mean, this is not a pretty penny, but I imagine like Jesus is sitting there like going like this, looking like roofs can be repaired, Peter. You know, you need to see this. But then when Jesus saw whose faith? Their faith. Their faith. The man in the story never says a word. We don't know if he had faith. Maybe he did. But we do know his friends did. And I think that points us, we all need stretcher bearers in our lives. Who is someone, who are the people in your life who would pick you up, would tear off the roof, and would lower you to Jesus? That doesn't just happen. Friends, it takes time. It takes time and intentionality to invest in relationships that, that that would happen with people. But I think there's a second point here is that you've also got to be willing to get on the mat. A lot of us are helpers by trade, like we're just like, okay, I'll help everybody else. Like, oh, I'll take you meals, I'll get you rides, I'll do this. But then when it comes for ourselves, it's like, oh, I can't ask for help, right? I can't let anybody else pray for me. I can't let them know my prayer needs. But sometimes in our spiritual journey, we need to rest on the faith of others. We gotta let the crowd lift, the faith, lift up us, the faithful ones, when we cannot do it ourselves. And you see what Jesus' response is here. What does he say? Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. He doesn't say, okay, well, all, you're healed, right? Now you can, now all of a sudden you have function in your legs. See, the man's malady was psychological and spiritual, not physical. The, his problem was his heart. He was paralyzed. Uh, imagine, you know, things like fear and guilt and shame, they can be paralyzing for us. And, of course, Jesus' forgiveness of sins is a big thing that only God can do. But imagine, it allows him to walk. He says, get up and walk. He's questioned by the teachers of the law, asking, you know, was it easier to say, forgive your sins or take up your mat and walk? Well, now we know the answer, right? He takes, tells the man to walk. And I think that's because sometimes spiritual healing is even more important than physical healing. Sometimes they're connected, right? 
you know this. Uh, there was a survey that was done um, in which Americans were asked, what, were the, what are the words you would most like to hear? And so the first answer, top answer was, I love you. We all desire to be loved. The second answer was, I forgive you. And the third answer was, supper's ready. But, but think about that. The power of forgiveness, of restored relationship, because broken relationships can be paralyzing. It can change the trajectory of your life. So kind of drawing this to a close, I want to ask the question, who are you? Who are you? What, where are you in need of healing? Because Capernaum shows us Capernaum is the healing place. Healing, though, always points to the healer, to his power, to his, his work in our lives, to, to showing us his care, his love, to showing us that he may be at work through the people around us. Where do you need healing? Where do we need healing? I think there's a lot of healing that we need, right, as a people. But healing are the acts of God that lead to something even more profound because they also tell us about Jesus' identity and the good news that he is about. Ultimately, the healing is not about the healing. It's about the healer. And the healing points to the ultimate healing that regardless of what happens in this day and time, it points to the ultimate healing that will take place in the kingdom. And to know that no, the end is not 